0: You know, professional baseball players are notoriously superstitious. The story is told of the 1954 New York Giants. During a 16-game winning streak, the team refused to wash their uniforms. For more than two weeks, the Giants played with dirty unis, lest they wash off their good luck. Hall of Fame player Hannes Wagner believed that every bat held only 100 hits. After 100 hits, he retired the bat, even a perfectly good bat. He was done with it. Every bat only had 100 hits. In 1993, when Ricky Henderson was traded to the Blue Jays, he paid another player $25,000 to give up jersey number 24 so he could wear his lucky number. Former Colorado Rockies outfielder Larry Walker used to have a fixation with the number three. He wore the jersey 33. He took three swings before he stepped into the batter's box. In the locker room, he always showered under the third nozzle. He set his alarm for three minutes past the hour. And he was married on November the 3rd at 3.33 p.m. After Giants infielder Jim Davenport hit two home runs in a game, he noticed that he had failed to button one of the buttons on his shirt. He had missed a button. And for the rest of his career, he left that same buttonhole empty every game. The way he buttoned his shirt became a superstition. For some baseball players, good luck charms are as important as bats and gloves. A coin or a chain or a rabbit's foot or a metal, or a rock they carry with them. The player hopes by carrying it, it'll conjure up some good luck for them. It seems so silly to me to put your trust in a rabbit's foot, especially since it didn't help the rabbit very much. (laughs) Superstition, though, explains what happened to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And And the word of Samuel came to all Israel, and now Israel went out, to battle against the Philistines. For a time during the period of the Judges, the Philistines dominated southern Israel. The Philistines were Europeans who had sailed from the island of Crete. They were called the Sea People. The Philistines initially tried to invade Egypt, but they were turned back, and instead they settled a little bit north of Egypt along the Mediterranean coast in what is today southern Israel. They organized into five city-states, Gaza, Gath, Ekron, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. Israel fought on equal terms with the Ammonites and the Moabites, but the Philistines had a material military advantage. They had imported iron weapons from Greece, armor and helmets and spears and swords and shields. The Philistines were the first people in Canaan to possess iron weapons. And the technology allowed the Philistines to dominate Israel. You know, often people mistake today's Palestinians as ancestors of the Philistines, not so. The Palestinians are Arabs. The Philistines were actually Greeks. The name Palestine was actually an invention of the Romans. When they conquered the land of Israel, when they conquered the Jews in the first century A.D., They renamed Israel after the Hebrews' ancient enemy, the Philistines. It was a a way of pouring salt in the wound, of expressing disdain and insulting Israel. I'm sure today's Palestinians have the same disdain for Israel and would like to dominate Israel as did the Philistines, but there is no genetic relation between the two. On a sidebar, most ancient people viewed dogs as predators as unwanted animals. You would never see a dog as a pet. But a dog cemetery was recently unearthed in the Philistine city of Ashkelon. Evidently, the Philistines were one of the first peoples to domesticate dogs. Well, Israel encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Aphek was east of the modern city of Tel Aviv near Joppa. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. The Philistines were definitely the aggressors. Their army had pushed their way into Israeli territory. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. It was a devastating loss and defeat. And when the people who came into the camp The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They couldn't figure it out. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. The bloodied and beaten Israelis, they called for backup. But rather than crying out to the Lord, they brought up the ark of the Lord Rather than trust in God Himself, they put their trust in the things of God. I call it a case of misplaced faith. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. At this particular time, the tabernacle was in Shiloh, and in its innermost sanctum sat the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was the centerpiece of the Holy of Holies. You remember we studied this. The Ark was a rectangular box, roughly four foot long by two foot high by two foot deep. In the Ark, there were three items. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and the rod of Aaron that had budded with almond blossoms to confirm his priesthood. The ark was plated with gold, and its lid, called the mercy seat, was made of solid gold. On top of it, it was adorned with two cherubim, or angels. The lid of the ark served as God's throne in the tabernacle. And over the ark rested the literal, tangible, visible presence of God, the manifestation of God, on earth, in the temple. Obviously, the Ark of the Covenant represented God to the people of Israel. But the men of Israel made a fatal mistake. They assumed that the Ark had powers of its own. Israel must have watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they saw how that the Ark burned the Nazi swastika off the side of the wooden crate. You remember that in the movie? They confused the movies for the Bible. The ark itself was nothing but a box. And yet the superstitious Hebrews treated it like a four-leaf clover, or like a rabbit's foot, or like the number 33, or like a dirty uniform. To the Israelis, it was just a good luck charm. And this mistake is not unique to the Hebrews of old. People today, too, are guilty of putting their trust in the things of God rather than in God Himself. Faith often gets confused with superstition. You see, superstition is the manipulation of inanimate objects in an attempt to direct the purposeless powers of chance, whereas faith is confidence in the living God, who has a mind of His own, and who orchestrates situations to accomplish His purposes. There's a big difference. Don't you be guilty of a misplaced faith just carrying a Bible does you no good. Just because you've got a Bible under your arm doesn't mean that the Bible itself has some kind of magical power. <laughs> Just carrying a Bible does you no good. You've got to read it. Just making an appearance at church is of value only if you worship while you're there. Christian relics or music or art might remind us of God's presence, but they should never take His place. They have no power of their own. Don't mistake the things of God for God Himself. It's been said no one is so thoroughly superstitious as the godless man. But tragically, this was Israel's error. Verse 5, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. The roar of the crowd, it sounded like a thunderclap. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Notice the Philistines were also superstitious. They too mistook God for the things of God, but they were pagans. You could expect that from the Philistines. The Israelis needed to act differently. They should have known better. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. It's interesting. The Philistines feared the God of Israel. At the Exodus, God had made a name for himself among the nations. Egypt's neighbors had set up and they had taken notice of God's mighty power. Here they're recalling God's demonstration of power in the wilderness. And the Philistines, though, they encourage each other here in verse 9. They say, Be strong and conduct yourself like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And verse 10 reveals what happens to God's people when they possess a misplaced faith. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And I'm sure the Hebrews didn't think it could get any worse, but it did. Also, the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hafni and Phinehas, died. In the late 1970s, Israeli archaeologists were digging in a grain silo at Izbet Sarte when they found a piece of pottery, a pottery shard that contained on the pottery shard were inscribed five lines. On those five lines, we find writing that recounts this story extra-biblical, archaeological evidence substantiating the biblical account provides some amazing evidence for the Bible's historicity. Well, then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day, and he came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. These were obviously signs of mourning. Now, when he came, there was Eli. You remember the high priest, Eli, Samuel's mentor, sitting on a seat by the wayside watching... For his heart trembled for the ark of God. He was more concerned for the ark than he was his two sons. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out, Oh my, the news of this defeat reaches Shiloh. And the crowd that had shouted now shudders. We've been defeated. The ark has been taken. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. When Eli heard noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, and the news became a death blow. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? And so the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, And there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And here are the words that did it, that did him in. And the ark of God has been captured. And when he heard that the ark had been captured, then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken And he died, for the man was old and heavy. The priest was so fat that when he fell off the stump, the weight of his body broke his neck, and he died instantly. Another reason to lose a little weight. And Eli's obituary appears in verse 18, And he had judged Israel forty years. But Eli was not the only person shaken up by the news of the ark's capture. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. This troublesome news triggered her labor. And about the time of of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. And then she named the child Ichabod. And the word Ichabod means no glory. Saying the glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She names her boy, No Glory. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. What a tragedy when the glory of God departs from a life, or from a ministry, or from a church, or from a community, or from a nation. And yet God, over the centuries, has had to write Ichabod above the door time and time again. You see, here is the result of a misplaced faith death ensues and God's glory departs. Faith is not superstition. God wants us to trust in Him, not in reminders of Him or relics about Him or rituals from Him. God wants us to trust in Him. And a misplaced faith produces the departure of God's glory. Edmund Burke once said, superstition is the religion of feeble minds, Real faith goes beyond the things of God and rests its hope, puts its trust in God alone. Well, chapter 5 begins, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the temple of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Ashdod was one of these city-states of the Philistines. And after they captured the ark, the Philistines brought the ark home to Ashdod to gloat over the victory they'd won and to mock Israel's God. Understand that in ancient times, a battle was not just a contest between two armies. It basically was whose God is bigger, my God or your God? And in the minds of the Philistines, their victory had proven that their God, Dagon, had proven more powerful than the God of the Israelis, Jehovah. This is why they bring the ark into the temple of Dagon. They set it next to their idol. Dagon was the fish god. His lower torso was like a fish. His upper torso was like a man. Something fishy about this guy. (laughs) And though the ark was just a reminder and a representation of God, nevertheless, God is about to use the ark To make a point to the Philistines, they may have defeated Israel's army, but Israel's God remains unconquered. They're about to find that out. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Dagon bowing before the ark. The disciples of Dagon, they get up in the morning. They find a fish god bowing down before the ark of Jehovah. It seems a little fishy to them. They chalk it up as just an accident. Hey, we'll set him back up. We'll try it again tomorrow morning. And so they took Dagon and they set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon falling on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only the torso of Dagon was left on it. This is not a mere accident. This is more than an accident. The idol's head and hands have been broken off. Jehovah is proving that he is way ahead of Dagon. It's interesting. We often think it's up to us to defend God's reputation. Here his people have been unfaithful, and yet God sees to it that he gets the glory. God can defend himself. Verse 5. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Rather than admit the obvious and recognize the superiority of Jehovah God, the Philistines removed the ark and they created a tradition. No human was ever allowed to enter the floor of the temple of Dagon again. The priests stayed away from Dagon's statue. You know, it's easier to glue an idol back together than it is to admit your sin and change your lifestyle. How many people have seen their idol crumble before them only to glue it back together, only to try to patch it up and start it over? Like folks today, rather than open up the windows of their mind and their heart to God's truth, they prefer to glue it back together, just patch up that lifestyle once more. Go back through the routine again. They prefer the stench of rotten fish to true faith in God. Well, verse 6 says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. The hands of Dagon had broken off, but the hand of the Lord had proven mighty. And here is the only time that I have ever been tempted to feel sorry for a Philistine, we're told. And he ravaged them And struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, rather than the word tumors, if you're reading from the Old King James, it says emrods. The Hebrew word literally means mound, a mound. And it comes from a word that means to swell. Here is where Bible commentators fall into two camps. Some understand the word tumors to mean hemorrhoids. Others think it referred to the bubonic plague, and we'll find out why in a minute. Famous classical Old Testament scholars, Kyle and DeLich, perhaps you've heard of them, they write this, according to the rabbis, it was a swelling of the rectum. Trapp puts it this way in his commentary. God was beating Dagon upon his own dunghill and smiting the worshipers on their hinder parts, paying their posteriors. God was paying their posteriors. Clark refers to it as the disease called the bleeding piles. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, verse 6, goes on to say, And the cities and the fields of all that region burst up, and mice were produced, and there was the confusion of a great death in the city. And this is why some people get the idea that that the bubonic plague was part of it. I think the plague was probably a combination of both. That They were struck with a dire plague of hemorrhoids, and also some kind of rat induced disease. Hey, if this was hemorrhoids, friend, this is a severe, serious, bare knuckle judgment from God. And remember, this is before the days of suppositories and preparation H. No doubt about it, this is a no-holds-barred judgment. God hits below the belt. (laughs) Literally. Here's a true story I clipped from the newspaper several years ago. Dateline, New York. A woman bedridden after hemorrhoid surgery became infuriated with her husband for leaving her alone while he went fishing and shot him to death when he got home, police said. Authorities said seeing her husband, Edward, traips off with a cooler of beer to spend Sunday afternoon with his friends was too much for Gail Murphy, who was obliged to remain in bed on her stomach. When she heard him return six hours later, she got up, walked to the porch with a shotgun, and fired through the door, then called 911. Murphy, 47, died Monday morning. Now, if this woman was truly tried by a jury of her peers, and I mean fellow hemorrhoid sufferers, I am certain that Gail Murphy was found not guilty. No doubt about it. Imagine the whole city of Ashdod suffering from a pandemic of hemorrhoids. Everyone crabby and crotchety and upset. Everyone staying home and taking sitz baths. The consensus would be, man, we're outflanked. We need to get this thing behind us. What can we do? Which leads us to verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Put it on another city. And so they carried the ark of God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. The tumors again. God's judgment is following the ark. His wrath now gets poured out on Gath. And suddenly, everybody in Gath is taking a sitz bath. Gath and bath and wrath. It all rhymes. And then the men of Gath, they send the ark to the city of Ekron. Look at verse 10. The Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us, to kill us and our people. And I'm telling you, a bad case of hemorrhoids, I'll kill you. This time, Gath fights back. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. After three cities and thousands of sitzbaths, the Philistines finally surrender. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. We give up. And let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. And there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. I would imagine. Chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months it took just seven months and a plague of hemorrhoids for the Philistine nation to surrender to God and send the ark back to Israel. The Philistines, and many a man since, have been were humbled by hemorrhoids. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to, to this place." They didn't want to do anything else to infuriate the God of Israel. And so they called for their religious scholars to tell them how God would want the ark to be transported, and they get it all wrong. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. And you're not going to believe what they put together for a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, there were five capitals, five city-states, so they had five golden hemorrhoids, five golden rats. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravaged the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. These golden rats and these golden tumors were the Philistines' acknowledgement that this plague was no accident, that it was from God, from the God of Israel. They were giving God glory for His judgment. They're reminded in verse 6, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Don't make the same mistake the Pharaoh made. He kept hardening his heart. Things only got worse. You don't want things to get any worse here. Just, Just send the ark back. Now, therefore, make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then they take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. This is obviously not how God wanted the ark to be moved. It was never to be placed on an ark. You remember, the priest carried the ark on poles. But this was the plan of these pagan Philistines. They had no clue. Then send it away and let it go, and watch if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance." Why is it people think things happen to them by chance? You know, God is in control, ultimately, of things that happen. Notice, though, they doubt to the very end here. The plague had followed the ark three different times to three different locations. It had shifted every time the ark had moved. How could this not be a plague from God? And yet the Philistines were still holding out hope, weren't they? They'd love to save face here. They'd love to say, oh, that's, this really wasn't a judgment of God. This was just sort of a chance thing. Verse 10, Then the men did so. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. Evidently, they didn't want the little calves to follow the mama calves over to the land of Israel. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh. This was an Israeli city right on the border between Israel and the land of the Philistines. And they went along the highway, lowing as they went, and they did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. The direction of the cows confirmed once and for all that this plague of hemorrhoids, this rash of rats, had truly been a judgment from God. The glory was due to the Lord. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth they ran up the road. They want to see for themselves. And now the people of Beth were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes, and they saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. Then the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These lords of the Philistines, they had beaten the Israelites, but they had been unable To whip the God of Israel. God got the last laugh. God got the victory. Katusha rockets are nothing compared to hemorrhoids. (laughs) God will get the victory. God will vindicate his people. Now these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron and the golden rats, according to the numbers of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth All seems well until we read verse 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now there are some Old Testament scholars that have noted several Hebrew manuscripts that provide a different reading of this text. It basically goes like this. Seventy men were struck dead out of the 50,000. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus also lists the death count at 70, not the 50,000 and 70. That's a possibility. You've heard though the expression curiosity killed the cat. Heard that expression? Well, it killed more than a cat in Bethshemesh. These men of Bethshemesh, they let curiosity lead them into sin. They open the ark to look inside and they violate its sacredness, its holiness. This ark, it wasn't a jewelry box. This isn't just God's hope chest. You don't just pop the top and have a peek. The law of Moses had been clear. Only certain priests... Only the family of the Kohathites were allowed to handle and touch the ark. Here, 50,000 people line up to get a peek into the ark. And the priests that handled the ark never lifted the lid to gaze inside. Now, here's something real interesting. Tonight's chapters teach us that there are two extremes that we can go with the things of God. On the one hand, we can overvalue them. And we can put our trust in the things of God rather than in God himself. This is what Israel did when they took the ark into battle, thinking that the ark had magic powers. But there's another mistake we can make. We can fail to acknowledge that the things of God represent God. And we can end up disrespecting God by being flippant and careless about the things of God. If we don't respect the things that God calls holy, then we're not being respectful. Here's an example. In one sense, your Bible is just paper and print and cowhide. Like I said, you can't zap anybody with your Bible. It's just a book. But in another sense, it's not just a book. It's a sacred book. It's literally God's word to mankind. Now, on the one hand, you can go to one extreme and you can turn your Bible into an idol. You can think that just by having the Bible around, you have magic powers and so forth. But don't go to the other extreme and just kind of throw your Bible around like a comic book. I get upset when the kids come in and they just throw their Bible across the room or throw it down on the floor or something. They're not showing it the respect that it deserves. Here's where we need to strike a balance. Trust God, not the things of God but certainly respect the things of God because they represent God. Trust God and respect the things of God. This is what these chapters are teaching us. Verse 20, And the men of Beshema said, Who is able to stand before this holy, God, holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirosh saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. So now the Israelites are trying to find another place. The men of Bethshem is trying to find another place to pass off the ark. Chapter 7. Then the men of Kirazerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained in Kirajerim a long time. It was there 20 years. The ark is going to stay in Kirajerim for the next two decades until David becomes king and he brings the ark up to Jerusalem. That will be its next location. Now, why the ark wasn't returned to Shiloh, we don't know. It's possible that the tabernacle was damaged in the battle where the ark was captured, and therefore they couldn't bring it back to Shiloh. We're not sure. But for the next 20 years, the ark will be in kiroth And while the ark is in Kirath, Samson will be waging a one-man guerrilla war against the Philistines. And though Samson will win some impressive victories, the nation as a whole will stay under Philistine control. And it will take Samuel, not Samson, to rally the people and expose their need for revival. Which brings us to verse 2. And all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Carrying the ark into battle didn't guarantee victory, and getting it back didn't guarantee God's blessing. The people of Israel were painfully aware that they weren't right with God. This was the bottom line, the condition of their hearts. And in verse 3, Samuel addresses the nation. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And here Samuel gives the keys for revival in any generation. For a personal revival, for a corporate revival, here's the way that God revives His people. Four words I want you to remember. First, return. He says, return. To the Lord with all your hearts. Return to God with all your heart. Exalt Him to the rightful place in your life. Second word, remove. Remove the foreign gods that have creeped into your life and have sucked away your allegiance. Rid your life of anything that rivals your devotion to God. Third, ready your heart. Stir up an expectation of what God will do. And then fourth, Reserve your efforts and energies for God alone. Serve Him only. Here's how to stir up revival in your heart. Return to God. Remove the foreign idols. Ready your heart for God might, what God might do. And reserve your energies and efforts for God alone. You do that, and God will revive a cold heart. And so the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They obeyed the words of Samuel. They came to Mizpah. Mizpah was a location about seven miles north of Jerusalem, easily accessible from all over Israel. And here Samuel holds a national day of prayer literally, a prayer meeting for the nation. Samuel is going to lead the people against the Philistines, but he realizes that every victory for God is first won, where? In prayer, on our knees. This is where the victory starts and is won. Verse 6, And so they gathered together at Mizpah. they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord. And this ritual symbolized the new commitment that the people had made to God. He pours out the water. Now, can you think of a more irreversible act than pouring out water? I can't. Once you pour out a glass of water, it's gone, man. (laughs) I had one Coca-Cola left the other night and I was so thirsty and I brought it upstairs and I set it down next to my chair. Kathy, close your ears. And I accidentally kicked it over and it spilled out on the carpet. And there it went. I couldn't get it back. My one last Coca-Cola. Can you imagine a more irreversible act than to pour out water? Once a liquid tumbles from the container, it can never be retrieved. When it's gone, it's gone. And this is the kind of commitment that God wants from you and me. An irreversible act Lord, I give my life to you, and I'll never take it back. You remember Twiggy Sanders? He played from the Harlem Globetrotters. And he had a routine that he did with the basketball. It was a basketball attached to a rubber band. And everybody would line up for a free throw, and Twiggy would throw that basketball up, and it would go up almost to the basket, and then it would snap back right to him. I'm afraid that a lot of people have a Twiggy Sanders commitment to Christ. They give their heart to Jesus, but then they take it back. They give their life to Jesus, but then they take it back. They give their worries and cares to Jesus, but then they take them back. It snaps back. We need an irreversible commitment. As Samuel, when he got there and he poured out the water, is your life a poured out offering to God? Is it an irreversible act? Is your commitment to Christ something you don't take back? You've made that commitment, and you're going to stick by it. Well, verse 6, And they fasted that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And so the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Keep praying for us, Samuel. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. They wanted to strike first. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Remember what we called Samuel? He was the praying prophet. And here he intercedes before God and God comes to Israel's defense. God orchestrated some kind of natural phenomena that confused the enemy and allowed Israel to win the victory. The Jewish historian Josephus, he provides us a fuller account of this battle. Let me read to you what Josephus says. God disturbed their enemies with an earthquake and moved the ground under them to such a degree that He caused it to tremble and shake insomuch that by its trembling, it made some unable to keep their feet and fall down. And by opening its chasms, He caused that others should be hurried down into them. Fissures in the ground were opened by this earthquake and literally swallowed up some of the Philistines. After which he caused such noise of thunder to come upon, among them and made fiery lightning shine so terribly round that it was ready to burn their faces. And he so suddenly shook their weapons out of their hands that he made them fly and return home naked. Imagine they got this lightning tan. Imagine lightning, you know, dropping right around you, you know, pow, pow, pow. And this lights are shining and the lightning shining in your face and you're all confused and you're disoriented and you're shaking and you're dropping your sword and your clothes are being singed off of you, you know, and and you're streaking home. That's what happened. You remember the Philistines were the ones that invented the iron weapons? But even an iron weapon doesn't do you any good if you can't hold on to it. God made sure they couldn't hold on to it. And the men of Israel went out of Mispah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Beth-kar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mispah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, which means stone of help, saying, Thus far... The Lord has helped us. I love that thought. Oh, yeah, we got a way to go. (laughs) We're not there yet. Oh, boy, we got a long way to go, but so far, the Lord has been our rock, our stone of help. He's been our strength, He's been everything we need. Do you feel that way about your life? I do. I got a long way to go, but so far. The Lord has been my Ebenezer. He's been my stone of help. He's been faithful to me. And I have no doubt he will continue to be. This hymn we did tonight, Josh did for us, was written by Robert Robert Robinson. It's entitled, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. And here's that second verse. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I raise my Ebenezer. In essence, it's expressing my testimony. I'm paying tribute to God for his help. I'm declaring also his future faithfulness. I'm saying I've got a long way to go. But Jesus is my stone of help. Thus far, so far, he's been my rock. And I know he will continue to be. He will continue to be faithful to bring me home. Verse 13 So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hand of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. As a young boy, dedicated by Hannah, now as an old man, Samuel had been God's servant and Israel's judge. And he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And judged Israel in all those places. That's interesting. Samuel was a circuit preacher. You know, during the 19th century, as America moved westward, the population expansion and the shortage of pastors created a need for the circuit preacher. One man would serve several churches in a particular area, and he would usually make his rounds on horseback. Evidently, Samuel was the very first circuit preacher. He made a loop every year among four cities, among Bethel, and then he'd go to Gilgal, then he'd go to Mizpah, and then verse 17, he would always return to Ramah, for his home was there. had always come back home and see mom. Ramah was home base, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord.